Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you here this morning. Uh, If you would pause with me, we want to pray, ask God to just fill this place with his presence and his spirit and uh, teach us. And so, Lord, we come before you as we worship you. And now as we open your word, I pray, God, that you would teach us, that you would transform us, that you would make us more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The title of this morning's message is How to Come in First. You like that one? How to Come in First. And just for fun this past week, I decided to do an online search. So I started typing in the words, How to Come in First. And you know how the search engine will often try to finish your sentence for you? So I started typing in How to Come in First. And this time, the search engine suggested the following words. How to come in first in your class without studying. (laughs) Must be a popular search amongst students. (laughs) Let's face it, students want want every edge they can get, right? And if you can find that edge and get ahead, without studying any more than you have to, well, then more power to you, students, all right? But students want every edge. They want to come in first. Athletes want to come in first, right? They want every edge. Athletes want to be the fastest, the strongest, the most accurate. And so athletes want to come in first. Business owners want to come in first. They want to get to the top of their industry. They want every edge. They want to grow their business. They want to expand their business. Everybody wants to come in first. I don't know too many parents who will post a picture on their social media site of their kid holding a certificate that says, you rank number 30 out of 30 in your class. I mean, that sounds silly, but right, parents, they want to post the number one student in the class. And so it's no fun to be last. We all want to be first. Throughout the second act of Mark's gospel, there's a group of people who wanted to be first. And that group of people were the disciples of Jesus. They wanted to be first. In fact, they were expecting to be number one because they were expecting their leader to be a powerful political leader who would overthrow the wicked government. And they, the disciples, they were expecting to be part of his administration. However, Jesus would teach his disciples a lesson that they would never forget in this passage for today. Today's message is the final message in Act 2 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us in his gospel. And for those who have been here for much of the series, hopefully by now you understand the flow of this three-act drama. For those who might be here for the first time, I want to give you the gospel of Mark in a nutshell. 
he lays out his gospel in three distinct acts. Act 1 takes place between chapters 1 and 8a. And in Act 1, which takes place in the region known as where? Galilee. The crowds, they follow Jesus, they witness and perform miracles and healings and the casting out of impure spirits, and they find themselves asking the question, who is this Jesus? They marvel at what they see. Act 2 takes place on the way from Galilee to where? Jerusalem. And Act 2, which we bring to a close today, takes place between chapters 8b and 10. And in this act, another question is being asked. But it's a very different question than the question asked by the crowds in Act 1. The question here that's being asked is this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And the question is being asked by whom? the disciples of Jesus. And the answer to that question has implications for their own future. Hmm, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And then what does it mean for us who follow him? The third act, which we will begin next Sunday, takes place in what city? Jerusalem. Chapters 11 through 16. And the focus of Act 3 is on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. So, with that as our backdrop, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 32. We have a long passage for today that will take us to the end of Act 2. But I'll begin by reading verse 32 in Mark chapter 10. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Let's stop right there. We're told here, in this opening verse, that the disciples were filled with awe. You see, they're walking behind their leader. And remember, they want to be number one, right? They want to come in first. And so, they're following their leader on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem, and they're getting ready to enter Jerusalem. And they are in awe of Jesus because they expect him to enter Jerusalem and take it by storm and to overthrow the oppressive, wicked government. So they're in awe of their leader. We're ready to go to war with you, Jesus. The crowds are following the disciples and they are afraid. They're in fear for what's about to happen, at least in their minds. The disciples, they expected Jesus to march into Jerusalem, take it by storm, 
and conquer the oppressive government with a military campaign. But Jesus, knowing what his disciples are anticipating, he takes them aside. And this is what he says to them in verse 33. Listen, he said. We're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Jesus took his disciples aside and explained to them for the third time, the third time in Act 2, that he was going to be betrayed, he will be mocked, he will be tortured, and he will die. If you've ever been mocked, if you've ever been made fun of, even if it's done in, in joking, it's no fun when you're made fun of by somebody else. Now, I've never been spat on by somebody intentionally. But I have to imagine that's got to be probably the most degrading, humiliating experience anybody could face, to have somebody spit on you. Jesus would be mocked. He would be spit on. And then he tells the disciples that he will be flogged. At that time, the whip was made in such a way that at the tip, at the end of the whip, they would attach sharp bone fragments. And every time that whip made contact with the back, it would rip the flesh, causing permanent disfiguration. But that's not even the worst of it. When the bone fragments would rip the flesh, what would often happen is it would send the person into a state of shock. They would call it a hypovolemic shock, which happens when the body loses so much blood and fluid that the heart can't pump enough blood throughout the body, causing all the organs to shut down. So Jesus tells his disciples, I will be mocked, I will be spit on, I'll be flogged with a whip, and I'll be killed. On the third day, I will rise from the dead. Jesus was not about to enter Jerusalem to overthrow the government. Jesus was about to march to his death. Now you would think, by that time, having told his disciples three times that he would die, you would think by that time they would have learned what awaited the Messiah. 
But I want you to see the very next thing that happens. After Jesus tells his disciples for the third time what's about to happen, here's the very next scene. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. That's the very next scene. Jesus is preparing to die. He's getting ready to be tortured. And meanwhile, James and John, they're preoccupied with their ranking. I want to add some context to their request. Okay. Just so you know, the request, it doesn't come out of nowhere. There is some context to their specific request. I want to take you back to, next, to last week for just a minute. For those who were here last week, you might remember that Jesus had an encounter with a rich, young government official. Remember that? This rich, young man approached Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Sell all your possessions give all the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you remember the result? This rich, young government official who had a lot of wealth, a lot of stuff, he walked away with his head down because the price was too high. He couldn't do it. And then Jesus, in talking with his disciples, he told them, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was not demanding that everybody with wealth sell everything we have and then give all the money to the poor. That's not what he was demanding. What he was doing was this. He knew this young man's heart and he knew that his possessions were his God. Little G-O-D. And in order for this young man to follow Jesus, he had to eliminate everything in his life that had become his God. And if you recall last week, at that moment when Jesus said, it is hard, it is so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, at that moment, Peter speaks out and he says, but we've given everything to follow you. And that was no exaggeration. Peter left everything. He left the family business. He left his nets. He left everything to follow Jesus. And then Jesus responds to Peter. Remember last week he said, everyone who has left house, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, property, for my sake, you can be sure that you will receive in return a hundred times as much. And if you were here last week, remember I explained to you what that does not mean. That does not mean this. 
That does not mean if you give $100 to the church that you, you can expect to see a $10,000 deposit into your bank account sometime in the future. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? And yet some people give with that type of mindset. I'm going to give now so I get more in return later. What it doesn't mean is that if we sell our house and we give all the proceeds, the entire sale, we give all that money to the church. Or even if we sell our house and we give 10% to the church, what it does not mean is this, that one day in the future, God's going to give us a bigger house. And yet some people approach giving that way. Here's what it means. If we invest our lives in the kingdom of God, we can be absolutely certain that we will experience the spiritual blessings of following Jesus. That is a certainty. We saw that this past week during VBS week, during Vacation Bible School. So much spiritual investment went into these young lives. And spiritual investment never comes back void. Amen? It never comes back empty. Now, I explained to you last week, and this is all, again, providing context for James and John's request. Last week, I said that the, the account of the rich young ruler appears in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew's account of the rich young ruler, Matthew provides a statement that we don't read in Mark's account. So I want us to go back to the book of Matthew. Go to Matthew 19 and look at verses 27 to 29. And this will provide the context for James and John's request. Verse 27. Then Peter said to him, We've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. So according to verse 28 here in Matthew 19, the disciples will have a special role in the future judgment. And so when James and John approached Jesus they said, we have a favor to ask of you. When Jesus asked, what is it that you request? When they said, we want to sit on your right and on your left, we have to understand that Jesus had already promised his disciples that they would sit with him in judgment. But James and John, they were expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem and immediately establish his political kingdom. And James and John wanted to be 
the top men in Jesus's political administration. Jesus, we want the offices, the big offices, right next to your corner office. By the way, in Matthew's account, if you were to read that entire account, Matthew not only says that James and John approached Jesus, their mother approached Jesus. Mark doesn't mention their mother, but Matthew does, because ultimately it was James and John's request. But in Matthew's account, Matthew says, oh yeah, by the way, it was their mom who went to Jesus. And let's face it, what parent doesn't want the best for his or her child, right? And so James and John, they probably got their mom to do all the dirty work. Come on, mom, put in a good word for us. Come on, go to Jesus. And so she pleads with Jesus to give her sons the best seats in his glorious throne. Parents want their kids to have the best. They want their kids to get the solo performance. They want their kids to get first chair. They want their kids to get the most playing time. One year when I was the coach of Andrew's Little League baseball team, every so often, parents would, they would drop hints. <laughs> coach Tim, my son's really good. And uh, you've got him in the wrong position. He loves playing over there. If you put him over there, he can really show off his skill. Coach Tim, my son, he doesn't really perform well batting ninth. <laughs> but if you put him up front, like first or second, he can really shine. So every so often, parents would, they would come up to me, draw me these very subtle hints. I get it. No parent wants to see his or, his or her child sitting on the bench. A friend of mine is a senior pastor at his church. He's also simultaneously the head coach of a local high school varsity boys tennis team. So he's a senior pastor at his church, and he's also the head varsity boys tennis coach. Tennis coach. And, and uh, he once said, he once said this, boy, I thought being a senior pastor was hard until I started coaching high school tennis. <laughs> because he said that parents would call him, text him, email him. Why didn't my son make the cut? Why isn't my son playing varsity this year? Why isn't my son getting enough playing time? I get it. We all want the best for our kids. James and John's mom, no different. She went to Jesus to plead on their behalf. Let's see now how Jesus responds. Verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink 
from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what, G, what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Jesus knew that James and John, at that moment, didn't fully understand how painfully difficult the road to glory would be. But they would eventually find out. Remember, what's the question being asked in Act 2? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. And the answer has implications for their lives. James and John would eventually find out what it would mean for them. James was the first apostle to give his life for following Jesus. John was banished to a remote island. Jesus knew that James and John as well as the other disciples, would be baptized into the baptism of his suffering. But James and John, they didn't know it when they asked him if they could sit on his right and on his left. By the way, did you know that that phrase, one on his right, one on his left, it appears one more time in the Gospel of Mark. Any idea where that appears, that phrase? One on his right, one on his left? At the crucifixion. At the cross. We'll read about that in chapter 15, in Act 3. Jesus' path to glory would go through a section of road between two criminals. James and John did not understand. They did not understand that the path to glory would be a difficult one. And the other disciples, they didn't understand either. We just read that the other ten, they were indignant. They were upset at James and John. Do you know why they were upset at James and John? It's not because they said, oh, how dare those two ask such an audacious favor. The other ten were upset at James and John because James and John beat them to Jesus. They wanted to ask that very question. They wanted power and privilege. What the disciples wanted, and we cannot miss this important fact, the disciples wanted to overthrow the wicked, oppressive power structure of the Roman government, but then replace it with their own power structure. Over the years, in some Christian circles, there's been an unhealthy preoccupation with trying to gain more power and ultimately build a more powerful, 
politically Christian society. Act two of Mark's gospel is all about Jesus teaching his disciples lesson after lesson about doing just the opposite. To let go of power. To relinquish it. To not cling to it. To not demand more power. To gain more power. To expand that power and do it all in the name of Jesus. We cannot escape that important fact. All of Act 2 is Jesus teaching his disciples about letting go of power. In the weeks to come, when we make our way through chapters 11 through 16, we're going to face some very difficult passages that speak on this very subject of power. And these will not be easy passages, so I'm going to tell you that ahead of time. But these will be absolutely important for us to understand the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And these passages, they're going to cause us to look into the spiritual mirror individually, as a church, and collectively as the church. And to help us to understand the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And we've been talking so much about the paradox. And I've used that word paradox throughout this series. For those who may not be as familiar with the word paradox, I want to give you a definition just so you understand what we're talking about. Paradox is this. It is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. That is a paradox. All of Mark 8b to 10 is intended to prepare the disciples for the paradox of their leader becoming king. And Mark summarizes Jesus' entire message in the next few verses. All of Jesus' message is encapsulated right here in Mark 10, starting in verse 42. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. How do we come in first in the kingdom of God? Remember our takeaway for the series? True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. I'm going to tell you something that you already know. This is no revelation. 
Serving is not easy, is it? Serving, in fact, can be very tiring. Now, I know some of you are gifted in serving. By the way, did you know that serving is a spiritual gift? And some have been gifted with serving. Some people are naturally gifted in serving. But that's no excuse for everyone else. We've all been called to serve others. That is part of our discipleship. Serving is tiring. It is exhausting. Uh, I imagine some of you here have worked in the food service industry. I did. Yeah, that was like my first job. I was a busboy dishwasher. And so those who have ever worked in a food service industry, restaurant, fast food place, store, wherever, you know how tiring it is. You know, it's tiring enough to serve people who are nice to you. It's downright miserable to serve people who treat you poorly. It's been said, an easy way to tell if you have a servant heart is how you act when you're treated like a servant. Again, an easy way to tell if you have a servant heart is how you act when you're treated like a servant. I mean, that is true humility. And I admit to you, that is one of the most difficult things to do, to serve others who treat us poorly. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And when he hung on the cross between those two criminals, he hung on the cross for all those who treated him poorly, spit on him, mocked him, and flogged him. And we are no more like Jesus than when we serve others. We are no more like Jesus than when we serve others. I thank God that he has filled our church with people who serve so tirelessly and who do it with a servant heart. And can I tell you this? That so much of that service is done behind the scenes when no one else is watching. And they don't do it for recognition. They don't do it for accolades. They don't do it for glory. And what I appreciate so much about our church is the privilege that I have to serve alongside the best servant leaders. Those are your leaders. They are servant leaders. Remember, true greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. Which leads us to the final section in Act 2. Verses 46 to 52. Verse 46 says this, Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. 
When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come. Tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Hey, cheer up. They said, come on. He's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Bartimaeus was an outcast. He was a nobody, and he was treated like that by all the crowds. They yelled at him, thinking, how dare he have the the nerve, the gall, to talk to Jesus? But then when Jesus stopped and said, hey, come over here, Jesus then asked this question, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? What would you like me to do for you? You might recall that's the very same question that Jesus asked James and John. James and John approached Jesus and said, we have a favor to ask. And Jesus said, what do you request? What do you want me to do for you? And their answer was, we want to sit next to you on your glorious throne. One on your right, one on your left. In contrast, Bartimaeus, sitting in the dirt, in his wretched poverty, cries out for mercy. Same question. What would you like me to do for you? Two very different answers. Here's the point of this closing section. The disciples were blinded by their desire for power. They thought they deserved privilege. Bartimaeus understood his spiritual poverty. It is no coincidence, church, that Mark closes out Act 1 with an account of a blind man receiving sight. If you were to go back to chapter 8, the middle of chapter 8, the end of Act 1, Mark closes out Act 1 with a blind man receiving sight. And it's no coincidence that Mark closes out Act 2 with another blind man receiving sight. The physical healing of blindness serves as a paradigm for the spiritual healing of the disciples' sight that was absolutely necessary for them to fully understand what their leader was about to endure in the third and final act. So here's our application for this week, church. 
I want to make this as practical as possible. Our application is this. Let's make the most of every opportunity to come in first by being last. Let's make the most of every opportunity to come in first by being last. And there are an endless number of ways that you can apply that in this upcoming week. I'll just name a few just to get you started. On the freeway tomorrow morning, <laughs> you're already convicted, I know. When you're going to work and the driver next to you wants that spot in front of you and wants to come into your lane last second, and you don't feel like giving up that spot because you're like, that is unfair. I've waited in this long line. How dare you come right in front of me? When that happens, not if, right? When that happens, <laughs> you will slow down, you will forgive that driver, and you will show grace. There you go. When you're treated unfairly at work by a coworker or by your boss, and everything in you says it's okay to retaliate, it's okay to reciprocate, it's okay to talk badly behind that person's back. When that happens, you will pray, calm down, forgive, and show grace. When you're waiting to eat and you're trying to figure out which table is going to be released first to the buffet line, you will go sit at the table that will be excused last. And you'll give up your seat. When you're in an argument with a loved one and you want that last word, by the way, this is the only example where it's okay not to be last, okay? <laughs> when you want that last word, you won't take it. You'll just walk away, forgive, and show grace. The list goes on and on and on. If we want lasting greatness in the kingdom of God, be last. That's how we come in first. Would you pray with me? Father, I admit to you right now that this was a difficult message to preach because now I am accountable to what I've just said. But also, Lord, Everyone here, they came, they came, they volunteered to come, and they've heard your word. So we are all equally accountable to your word, God. If we want lasting greatness, Lord, we must be last. We must put others' needs and desires above our own. And this week when it's tough, when faced with 
the opportunity to, to get even, to hurt the other, to not give in. Remind us of Jesus on the cross who died, who died for our sins and for the sins of the world. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Help us to be like Jesus this week. We pray in his name. Amen.